If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, where we're going to be look at pleasing God, which is impossible without faith. Jonathan Edwards, who is arguably the probably greatest theological mind that America has ever produced, was God's key instrument in what is referred to as the Great Awakening, a revival that swept through the early American colonies in the winter of 1734 and 35. In November of 1734, Edwards was preaching a series of sermons on justification by faith alone. And suddenly, six people were converted in his congregation. One of them, a, uh, a, a very popular and somewhat notorious young lady who lived a very worldly lifestyle. News about this spread. Uh, and during the winter, uh, that same winter, some 300 of uh, Edwards' 670-member congregation came to Christ. Fires of spiritual revival periodically sprung up in New England until 1740 when they were fanned into somewhat of a, a firestorm by the preaching of George Whitfield. Tens of thousands of people flock flocked to hear Whitfield preach the gospel. Meanwhile, Edwards was watching all of this. He was a great observer. He had incredible powers of observation. He's, he was exceedingly smart, hard to even describe how smart he was. But uh, before he went to Yale University at age 12, uh, he had mastered Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He wrote a paper at that age uh, about a spider which was so profound that the Professors refused to believe that he wrote it and later on became one of the, the hallmarks of uh, natural history in America. And so Edwards was watching this and, and just pondering what God was doing through the revival as it sprung up in various places and, and masses were converted and he was just looking at it and wondering about it. And he noticed that in some places there were just great signs of uh, what you would call emotionalism, uh, just, you know, people falling on the floor and rolling around and moaning in agony and some having kind of just trances where they just kind of just stood looking up, you know, praising God and, and kind of oblivious to everything around them. Edwards was concerned about this and he tried to distance himself from it. And so he did everything he could to attempt not to encourage it. And one of his Techniques was to preach in a monotone voice with no gestures looking straight ahead. He thought surely this dry monotone approach to preaching will appeal to the mind, if anything, rather than the emotions. However, it did not work. It was Sunday, July 8th in 1741 when Edwards was preaching in Enfield, Connecticut. He was preaching on the text Deuteronomy 32, 35, their foot shall slide in due time. The title of his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In that sermon, Edwards so graphically portrayed the perilous state of the unconverted as basically being like a spider hung over the very mouth of hell that people were undone. Congregants began to cry out loud in terror, feeling that they would fall into hell itself. 
Strong men shook with fear and cried like babies, their faces ashen white with terror. Some actually got out of their pews and clung to the pillars of the church for fear that they might fall into hell itself. Others stood moaning in repentance and rolling on the floor in agony that they were in sin and needed salvation. Edwards, of course, was shocked at all of this. He had done everything he could to prevent it. And now here it was in full flame in front of him. Uh, not knowing what to do, he, he kept preaching. And at the end of his sermon, the people left weeping and repentance. And that night, over 500 people repented of their sins and gave their life to Jesus Christ as the people spread out in the town to share what they had heard from Edwards. But over time, Edwards observed something rather alarming. What he observed is that there was many people who were falling away from the faith after having had this emotional experience, which was supposedly a true repentance in Christ, which, of course, it was not. He also was concerned that some people, having had this experience, were now going to church, but were showing no signs of growth. Fearing that they might die, thinking they were actually saved when they were not, and moved him to write three different works, one of them being The Religious Affections, which was published in 1746. All three works sought to explain from the scriptures the difference between the effect of true saving faith and mere emotionalism. In his religious affections, Edwards warned not to cling to false notions of faith. And he wrote this, quote, I cannot but observe that there are certain doctrines which often are preached to people, which need to be delivered with more caution and explanation than they frequently are. For as they are by many understood, they tend to greatly establish this delusion and the false confidence of hypocrites. The doctrines I speak of are those of Christians living by faith, not by sight. They're giving God glory by trusting him in the dark, living upon Christ, but having no obedience, not making their good deeds the foundation of their faith, which are excellent and important doctrines indeed rightly understood, but corrupt and destructive as many believe them, end quote. Edwards observed that there were many who said they had faith in Christ, but when you looked at their life, you, you couldn't tell. They were following the Lord. They were pursuing holiness. They didn't strive to understand the knowledge of God. There was no apparent godliness in their life. They professed to believe in Jesus, but possessed no holiness, nor desire to follow Jesus wherever he would lead. They thought that merely church attendance made them followers of Christ. Edwards wrote, quote, that faith which is without spiritual light is not the faith of the children of light and of the day, but the presumption of the children of darkness. And therefore to press and urge them to believe without any spiritual light or sight tends greatly to help forward the delusion of the prince of darkness. Men not only cannot exercise faith without some spiritual light, but they can exercise faith only just in such proportion as they have spiritual light. Men will trust in God no further than they know him. 
And they cannot be living by faith one ace further than they have a sight of his fullness and faithfulness, end quote. Saving faith, Edwards explained, is the byproduct of true knowledge and spiritual truth, light, spiritual light. When the gospel light and truth comes into a person's life, it changes them so they no longer live like they did before. They are born again. They are new creatures in Christ. They follow Christ. They love Christ's word, Christ's people, Christ's service, and Christ himself. And it was evident to Edwards that many, though they professed to have saving faith, had no external evidence of saving faith at all in their life, were definitive that they were indeed saved, though. Edwards lamented, quote, those that thus insisted on persons living by faith when they have no experience, by which he means external evidence and a life change, are in a very bad frame, by which he means do not follow Christ are also very absurd in their notions of faith. What they mean by faith is believing that they are in a good estate. Hence, they count it a dreadful sin for them to doubt their salvation, no matter how they live their life and whatever wicked things they do, because it is a great heinous sin of unbelief. And he is the best man and puts most honor upon God that maintains his hope of his salvation the most confidently and immovably when he has the least knowledge of God or life of obedience. Indeed, that is a sign that he is strong in faith, giving glory to God and against hope. He believes in hope, end quote. Edwards rightly points out what the author of Hebrews is trying to get to. In Hebrews chapter 11, that faith changes our life. That true saving faith makes us look like the people in Hebrews chapter 11. It is not merely a mental stubbornness of mind that we have faith against all the evidence. That, Edwards rightly states, is a satanic delusion. And as we look At Hebrews 11 this morning, you are going to see that Enoch is a great example of what it means to live by faith. True saving faith caused him to walk with God. I'm concerned that some of you this morning might be deluded in some of the very same ways that Edwards was concerned about. Maybe you call yourself a Christian and Obviously, you're here at church this morning, so maybe you kind of feel that's what it means to walk with Christ. Well, keep in mind that there are people all over the world who gather every week to worship their false gods, but that doesn't mean they're saved. I'm also concerned that some who are deceived about the true condition of their soul might think as we go through Hebrews 11 that, you know what? These people are amazing. These people are kind of, you know, hyper, extraordinary, exceptional cases of believers to be admired and to be marveled at, but not to be mimicked. And that would be a tragic error to cling to a barren faith. I warn you not to try and appease your conscience by convincing yourself that the lives of faith mentioned in Hebrews 11 are merely trophies to be admired and not examples to be followed after. 
This would be to lie to yourself that you are on your way to heaven when indeed you're on your way to hell. Granted, many in this chapter saw exceptional responses by God to their faith, but all lived in the very same kind of way all believers live, which is by faith. And we must not just talk about trusting in God by faith, but actually trust him in faith. We must not merely know that God will pull through for us if we live by faith, but what we must experience God pulling through for us because we live by faith. We must not merely read about Christ and the glories of heaven, knowing that that's what the Bible says. We must see it with the eye of faith, long for it in our heart and arrange our lives in such a way that we know it's true. I imagine if your house was on fire, you wouldn't sit in front of the TV unmoved to action. And how is it that many who hear about God's word profess faith in Christ, know about his threatenings, warnings, promises and glories to come, can sit there in their pews week after week and be unmoved? There is only one answer. They don't possess saving faith. They are certainly deluded. As James so persistently points out, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And so as we look at our text this morning, we're going to see this. We're going to keep seeing it. But look in your Bibles at Hebrews 11 and follow along as I read the first six verses. The author of Hebrews writes, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen for by it, men of old gained approval by faith. We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible by faith. Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Let's consider the walk of faith from Enoch's life and the necessity of living by faith so that we can please God. First, Enoch, our example of walking by faith. Look at verse five, where we read by faith, Enoch. I'll just stop there. I'm not going to cover this because we covered it already twice and in two different messages. I'm just going to briefly mention it. Whenever you walk by faith, it all begins with first believing in Christ. You have to first have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ before you can begin to walk with Christ in a way that pleases God. We learn that there are two kinds of faith. There is that initial saving faith, and then that initial saving faith is lived out in what is often referred to as a sanctifying faith. That is a life of faith lived for the glory of God. 
Now keep that in mind. So we are told two things in this verse that Enoch's faith accomplished, starting with the latter. First, look at verse 5, which says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. Now just stop there. Here we have a unique occurrence in history. Enoch was raptured, translated, so that he would not see death. Death came calling, and Enoch wasn't home. Where is he? He's already in heaven. You mean he didn't die? No, he's he's gone. He went straight up. He was beamed up. And he did this in body and soul. Why? Well, the text says he was not found. They looked for him and said, man, where is he? I mean, it's like he just disappeared. You know, you've got this neighbor, you know him, you see him. He's a very religious guy. He's always praying and walking and mumbling to somebody. And now he's gone. Elijah was also caught up to heaven, but so that he would not see death. But Enoch's translation into heaven is more indicative of what believers will experience right before the tribulation. As Paul describes in first Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, speaking of the resurrection, he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we will be changed. And so we have this little statement here that there will be a time when believers uh, are alive on this earth and they will all be changed and in a twinkling of an eye be caught up to be with the Lord. This is what Enoch experienced, an instantaneous rapture and translation from earth to heaven so that he was no longer found on earth. And this is amazing because Enoch, you know, started out in the very beginning. And yet God gives us a little picture here, a model here, kind of a a pledge or promise that this is what can happen to all those who walk in faith with God. When we consider the context of Enoch and his times, the parallels are even more evident We read in Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continuously. That is a, that's a bad statement, isn't it? When you get to that place, when the thoughts and intentions of your heart are only evil continuously, that is actually the statement that tells us why God sent the flood upon the earth. That is the initial mention of the corruption in the world for why God sent the flood. Thus, Enoch lived in that time, a time of just unprecedented wickedness. And then right before God sent divine global judgment with the flood upon the earth, he was taken out of the way. The New Testament teaches the same thing. Before the tribulation, a time of unprecedented divine global judgment, believers will be raptured and escape the wrath to come. And it is only those who live by faith and walk with God who will be raptured as Enoch was raptured. Enoch walked with God and he was not for the Lord took him. Genesis 5:22 tells us how long he walked in this state of communion with God. It wasn't just a few weeks or a few years, it was 300 years. Genesis 5:22. 300 years. He lived 65 years and then started walking with God and he walked with him for 300 years. I mean, think about that. In a very wicked age, what does that tell us? It tells us that God's grace is sufficient, isn't it? God's grace is sufficient for us to live in a wicked world and yet not be overcome by that wickedness, to not become worldly, 
to not be corrupted by sin. God's grace is sufficient for those who have faith in him and gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness and equips us for every good work. And so Enoch, though he was living in a very wicked time in a very sin-saturated world, was able to walk with God for 300 years in that world. Now, I'm not implying that Enoch never sinned, but that the pattern of his life was one of faith and prayer and communion and trust and obedience to God. He walked on the earth with his mind in the heaven. He got up in the morning thinking about God and went on walks and talked with God and prayed and pondered heaven and pondered the things not of this world. He was so consumed with God and the things of heaven that God finally said, well, you know what? Since you're up here all the time anyways, why don't you just come on up anyways? And God took him and he was not. Now, I cannot promise this for all of us, but it is possible that every believer here this morning might not taste death, but be translated in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, raptured into glory. But the great thing is, is even if we die in Christ, even if we live our lives of faith and we die, yet the dead in Christ will be raised first. So when all those people are alive and get raptured, we'll already be there going, what took you? A.W. Pink defines walking with God as, quote, being lifted above the things which are seen and being occupied with those things which are unseen. It is for the affections to no longer be set on the things of the earth, but to have them fixed on things above, end quote. Like we saw in the missions video to just set aside some of your earthly trappings and ease and get out there. And pursue people for Christ. Does that describe you? Do you have your mind fixed on the things above? Does that think about last week? Were you thinking about heaven and glory and Christ and angels and and not this world most of the week? Second. And directly related is why Enoch was raptured. Look at verse five by faith Enoch. And then look towards the end of verse five. Obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. This verse mentions Enoch's faith first, which is always a prerequisite of pleasing God. Then in verse 5, it mentions the effect of faith. He was taken up and not found. God took him. And then at the end of 5, we have back at the beginning why he was pleasing to God. Why he was pleasing to God. Um, he was pleasing to God because he lived by faith and living by faith is pleasing to God. So you kind of have this little sandwich going on in this text. And he was pleasing to God for the same reason Abel was pleasing to God. I mean, Abel offered his sacrifice, but where was his mind? On Christ. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, Jack, this is way back in Genesis. I mean, we didn't have the rest of the Bible. What did, he, what did Enoch know about Jesus? I mean, I mean, you know, maybe he knew that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. But, you know, what else was there? Well, I don't know how much he knew, but I know that Jude 14 says that he preached of the second coming judgment of Christ. So he knew something. Enoch's faith in the coming Messiah caused him to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is only by faith. And as R. Ken Hughes has rightly noted, quote, faith proceeds and produces the walk with God that so pleases him, end quote. And what's interesting, too, is this phrase here, please God, 
in Hebrews 11.5 is taken from the LXX. The LXX is an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was around during Jesus and the Apostles' time, which the author of Hebrews loves to quote from directly. And the LXX, when it translated Genesis 5.24, where it says Enoch walked with God, instead of just translating it walked with God, they translated it please God. Why? Because that's what it means. To walk with God is to please God. And so instead of using the Hebrew idiom, they just went ahead and translated it directly. And this is helpful because it teaches us that walking with God is the same thing as pleasing God. So if you want to walk with God, then you want to please God. And if you please God, it's because you're walking with God. Not only that, but we shall see from verse 6 that faith is absolutely necessary if we are going to live a life that pleases God. It says by faith, and then it talks about him being caught up, and it said he pleased God, and that's why he was caught up. But then verse 6 reminds us exactly why he pleased God. It was by the faith first mentioned in verse 5. Knowing we are such great sinners, I think it's amazing that we can even please God at all. I mean, don't you ever marvel at that? If you know your own heart and you know your own sin and you know how unworthy you are, you know that God is infinite, that he has infinite resources. I mean, what can you give him? You know, it's, he's the person who has everything. And what do you give God? You give him a life of obedience, of love, of devotion, of worship, and that pleases him. Noah, we learn in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9, is also described as having walked with God. He was not raptured, but he was delivered from the global judgment which came upon the earth by entering into the ark. The term walked is often used in the Bible to describe the believer's life of faith. And I was thinking about this and I kept I was reading all these commentaries this week and I was trying to figure out, you know, what is it about? What is it about walking with God? What does that mean? What can I, you know, what can I do to explain what that means? And, and some people talked about walking God means this and walking God means that. And I just thought, well, what does it mean to walk with somebody? And so I came up with five criteria, five criteria you must have if you're going to walk with somebody. First, you need to be in the right place. If I'm going to go on a walk with you, we got to show up to the same place, right? So you need to be at the right place to start your journey. And where is that right place. Well, that right place is repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. That's where you begin to start your journey. And John Bunyan pictured it as, as a Christian getting up and entering in through the wicket gate and not wicked, wicket, um, an old English word, which means narrow, the narrow gate, uh, where you enter through faith. And so you need to ask yourself, have you shown up at the trailhead of where the journey begins with God? Have you come to the place where you've repented of your sins, placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, trusting in what Christ did and what Christ did alone, you adding nothing? That's what it takes. Because a sinner can't please God until they show up where the journey begins, and that's faith in Christ. Secondly, you must be there at the right time. You can't go on a journey with somebody unless you both show up at the same time to go on the journey, right? you got to be there to begin there. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, when do you show up with God? You know, well, when is the right time to start your journey with Christ? 
David tells us in Psalm 95 verse 7, the author of Hebrews actually quotes it four times in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. When he says, what day is the day of salvation? Today, now, this instant. That's when the journey needs to begin if you haven't started it already. You must flee now from the wrath to come. You must run from the city of destruction, as Bunyan described it, and not delay. Third, you need to walk in the same direction. If I'm going to go walking with you and we show up together and you walk east and I walk west, we're not walking together, obviously. And so even if you show up at the right place and place your faith in Christ, being there at the right time, you need to walk with God. You say, well, how do you do that? How do you know which direction to go? Well, Jesus is the way you walk like Jesus. You get into God's word, which is a lamp unto your feet and a light into your path, which is the compass that tells us what direction to live our lives. You saturate yourself with the scriptures so you know what direction to go. We're not walking with Christ if we're wandering off into Bypath Meadow. You know, Bunyan pictures it. There's the steep, rocky hill. And he sees the path go straight up there. But he thinks, man, that looks hard. And so often the world gives us a nice, soft, green meadow to wander off in. And we think, you know, this looks like it goes around the mountain. But with Christian, it made him walk the wrong direction. And that's what we do frequently. And when you realize you've wandered off, when you realize you're not on the straight and narrow, that's when you stop. You confess your sins to God. You repent and turn around and you get back on the path. And so you must walk in the same direction for you must walk at the same pace. This one here is convicting to me. You know, if I was God and I'm not, and it's good, I'm not. I would do things faster. You know, I would sanctify me faster. I would save more people. You know, I would do things and and sometimes, you know, you may know people who get a little anxious and run ahead of God. And then you experience all sorts of problems and grief. And a lot of times at the end, you thought if I just had waited, it would have turned out great. And I caused myself all this grief. You ever know anybody like that? Or maybe you're like the opposite kind of person. Not only, you know, maybe you don't run ahead of God. Maybe you just kind of lag behind. You're procrastinating. You know, I'm going to get to it eventually. You know, eventually I'll get disciplined and start reading my Bible. You know, after I pay off my Ferrari, I'll start giving to church. You know, you're always delaying. There's always a procrastination. No. You must walk at the same pace as Christ, letting his providence and his word show you this is how I should be and slowing down if you're going too fast and hurrying up if you're lagging behind. And fifth and finally, you must desire to have a relationship with Christ. Two strangers can show up at the right place at the right time. Walk at the same place, pace, you know, do all those things, go in the same direction. And yet, if they have no desire to have a relationship, to know each other, then they just walk side by side, strangers. And so you need to want to know Jesus, to desire to know Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, to fellowship with Jesus. You know, to know the person who's rescued you from hell. That's what it means to walk with God. And those who don't do this are deluded into thinking they are saved when they are not. 
Enoch walked with God. And the question you need to ask yourself is this. Am I walking with God? Secondly, we see from the text, the only way you can please God. Look at verse six, which refers directly to verse five, telling us why Enoch pleased God. He says, first, a statement of fact, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. That is, that should cause every person to just stop and to think about that. If I don't have faith, I can't please God. Do I live by faith? You need to ask yourself. If not, you're not pleasing God. If you aren't living by faith, you're not pleasing God. It's impossible. Notice the text doesn't say without faith, man, you really have to work hard to please God. It's impossible, which means it can't be done even a little bit. You can't even make God a little bit pleased. You can't even give him any glory if you're not living by faith. None. We should also be very cautious knowing that men often mistake non-saving kinds of faith for the real thing. Not only is there the absence of faith in some people's lives, sometimes people cling to the wrong kind of faith. A faith, yeah, that can be described as faith, but it's not a saving faith. It's not a faith that gives God glory. I was just thinking about this. I came up with four examples. First, there is religious faith, which believes in Jesus And is even zealous to do good works. Hardcore servers who believe in Jesus and God. You think, well, man, what else is there? Listen to what Jesus said about them in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness did they believe in jesus of course did they believe in god yes did they believe jesus was lord obviously Were they zealously doing religious deeds in his name? Absolutely. Did they have saving faith? No. No. They had religious faith. And Jesus gives us this warning. So all of us will look at our life and say, am I just religious? Am I hoping my religion will save me rather than Christ? Jesus says there will be many in the church who fit this description. Religious faith, which does not save. Secondly, there is fair weather faith, which doesn't please God either. In John chapter six, Jesus is 
dialoguing with his disciples. There's a huge crowd. There's a bunch of followers. These people have followed Jesus. They're learning from Jesus. They're, they're saying, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus. They're a lot of profession and action to back up their perfection. I mean, it's great. This guy's a phenom. He can do miracles. Man, he has incredible teaching. Look at the crowds. We're popular. Things are great. And then Jesus says, and by the way, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. And they go, what? And he says, oh, you have a problem with that? You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What? And I know that some of you don't believe me. What? And I also want you to know that no one can come to the father, but through the son and no one can come to the son unless the father who sends him draws him. You've got to be kidding. We're out of here. And John says in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. His disciples, believers, fair weather Christians. Think about it. Like the parable of the soils, the seed sown among the rocky ground and it sprouts up. Jesus describes them as people hearing the gospel and they come into church and go, whoa, man, this is radical. We love singing those songs. We love hearing those sermons. The Bible is so fascinating. Oh, man, it's great. But then when affliction or persecution comes because of the word of God, immediately they fall away. Their fair weather faith is exposed as not saving faith at all. Third, there is a demon faith. James speaks of it in James chapter 2, verse 19, where he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. The Greek literally says their hair stands on end. They're so scared. Demons know that there is a God, that Jesus is the son of God, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross and rose again the third day. Man, they are orthodox. You remember how the Gerizim demoniac responded to Jesus? He believed in Jesus. Luke 8, 28, seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, what business do we have to do with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Was he a believer? Big time. He majorly believed in Jesus. But with demon faith... R. Kent Hughes comments, quote, there are no doubt evil spirits of atheism. Demons who have influenced and danced on the graves of atheists. But all demons are thoroughgoing monotheists and Trinitarians to boot. So believing God is, is only the beginning, end quote. Even demons that promote atheism believe in God. Fourth and finally, as we learn from Edwards earlier, there is the kind of faith that one has faith in their faith. Some people are confused into thinking what faith means is me never doubting that I'm saved. Never doubting that I don't have faith and that those who have the greatest faith in their faith are those 
who are surely saved. But that's not true. Those people perish because they don't have faith in Christ. They have faith in their faith in Christ. You know, I'm always amazed when people come up to me and they say, Pastor Hughes, can I, can I talk to you? And, you know, I just, I just want to tell you about my wife or my husband or my child. And they say, you know, I don't think they really know the Lord. And I just wanted you to know that. And they think they're telling me some profound secret if I, as if I was deluded into the thinking that their loved one who isn't involved in any ministries, who shows no interest in things eternal, who doesn't read their Bible, pray, give, or share their faith is actually saved. Doesn't Paul plainly tell us in Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21? Now the deeds of the flesh are evident evident which are immoralities impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy outbursts of anger disputes dissensions factions ending drunkenness crowding, and things like these of which i forewarned you just as i have forewarned you that those who practice such things will inherit the kingdom of god and then there are always those moral people who don't seem to be doing these kinds of things and it's hard to see these things in their life. And so then he adds another one just to make sure that the absence of other things also show that saving faith is absent. When he says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things are easily observed, aren't they? You can just see them in a person's life. They either have them or they don't. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, the sins of some men are quite evident. Going before them to judgment, others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also good, also deeds that are good are quite evident. And those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Or as Paul says of false teachers in 2 Timothy 3, 9, that they will not make further progress for their folly will become obvious to all. Just as Janice and Jambri's folly was also. They talk to any kid. Read, you know, Janice and Jambri's are the two magicians in, uh, of, the, of the Exodus. The Pharaoh's magicians who tried to mimic the miracles of God. All you got to do is just ask any little kid, any little four or five year old. So let's read the Exodus story. Okay. These guys here, um, were these guys of God? No. Were these guys doing miracles by the power of God? No. You think it's that obvious? It's obvious. Probably the clearest and most forthright text that we might consider is First John 3.10, where John says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You who do not have true saving faith, the believers know it. We can see it and we're praying for you and we'd save you if we could, but we can't. You're surrounded by godly examples here. You hear the gospel preached from this pulpit weekly and, uh, you know, we're praying for you. We're hoping that God causes the scales to fall from your eyes so that you see that, oh, I just have a religious faith. I just have, you know, a fair weather faith. I just have a demon faith. I just have a faith that I have faith, but no faith in Christ. And only God can give you that.
let's just say you're a young lady and the man that you've been seeing for quite some time takes you to the beach and the sun is setting and the sky is filled with, you know, little skiffy clouds of orange and pink. And you're looking at the sunset and talking about how beautiful it is and he turns to you and he drops down on his knee and pulls out a little black velvet box. And you're shocked, but you know what this means. And he opens that box up and there is the most beautiful, gorgeous diamond ring with this huge diamond and you're just struck. He says, will you marry me? And you say, of course. And he puts that ring on your finger and you can't wait to get back and tell everybody and show him your ring. And so that's what you do. And you get married and you have children and you grow old and eventually your husband dies. And now you've been looking at your ring and you've noticed the little prongs that hold it into place are getting old and worn out and you're afraid that one might break and you might lose your huge diamond. And so you decide to take it to a jeweler and uh, as you take it to the jeweler, He's cleaning it and he's looking at it with his weird little monocle things. And and you just kind of overcome with curiosity. You say, so how much is a diamond like that worth? And he looks up at you and says, this isn't a diamond. This is a zircon. And you're shocked and you can't believe it. Surely he is mistaken. But he says, no, no, let me show you. And he gets out his little hardness tester and goes, yep, it's a zircon. It's a fake. It's not the real thing. And your mind races back to all of the people you showed that ring to and said, look at that diamond. Look at that diamond. Look how huge that diamond is. How proud you were of it. And now you discover after all these years, it was a fake and worth very little. Just a cheap imitation. Professing Christian, don't let that happen to you. Don't be clinging to what you think is real faith. You take it to God's word and you let God examine your faith for you. Don't let anybody else, your parents tell you, oh, you're saved. When you were four, I remember in Sparky's you cried. And ask Jesus in your heart. Oh, I was there when you went forward at that crusade. Oh, I was there when you were so convicted about your sin. No, no. You look at your faith now and see if it passes the test by the word of God. Are you walking with God by faith? No, no faith. Because true faith causes a person to walk with God. Go to the scriptures and let God tell you it's the real thing. Don't listen to men. Let God tell you. And if you look at your faith and you see, you know what? I am changing. I am becoming more like Christ. I am becoming more committed. I am becoming less in love with this world and more in love with the things to come. I just want to just get rid of it all. I just want to pursue God. I just want to glorify God. I just want to know him better and serve him more and lead more people to Christ. Then you got the real thing. Look at verse six, which gives us two reasons why God can only be pleased by faith. First, look at the middle of verse six. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And just stop there. Notice we see that one must come to God. Why? Because before that, you're away from God. You have to come to God. You're lost and you need to be found. That's why Jesus came to seek and save the lost. When we are born into this world, we're estranged from God. We're lost and we need to come to God or come to Christ or find God or however you want to say it. Because all of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. We get lost in the thicket. And so you need to come to God. And in order to come to God, you need to believe that he is. There is a God and surely there is a God. And I need to keep believing there's a God. Obviously, that's just so you need to believe that there is the great I am. That he is the God who created everything. And that you need to seek him and get right with him. You must believe God exists. Even though you can't see him. You need to believe he's real. Even though you can't touch him. This is where it starts out. Believing he is. Homer Kent wrote, quote, No one can please God in the biblical sense without faith. To please God is to walk before him in uprightness and obedience, to respond to his overtures and his trust and his guidance. And as much as God is unseen and his revelation to men is largely concerned with the promises of spiritual nature, many of which await future consummation, no meaningful or conscious, uh, conscious relationship with God can be established without a willingness to believe that he exists, obviously. Likewise, no one comes to God in this way without believing that he keeps his promises. Otherwise, there would be no point in seeking to please him by walking in righteousness before him, end quote. I mean, why pursue God? Why obey God if, you know, you think it's all for naught and it's worthless? Why sacrifice? Why set aside the pleasures of this world to do what God wants you to do if he doesn't reward those who seek him? Obviously. It's so important to realize that faith is so critical When you read the scriptures, you see over and over again, we have to live by faith. A.W. Pink concludes, quote, how essential it is then that each of us examine himself diligently and make sure that he has faith. It is by faith that the convicted and repentant sinner is saved. Acts 16, 31. It is by faith that Christ dwells in our heart. Ephesians 3, 17. It is by faith that we live. Galatians 2, 20. It is by faith that we stand. Romans 11, 20. 2 Corinthians 1, 24. It is by faith that we walk. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. It is by faith the devil is successfully resisted. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. It is by faith we are experientially sanctified. Acts 26, 18. It is by faith we have access to God. Ephesians 3, 12. Hebrews 10, 22. It is by faith we have, we fight the good fight, 1 Timothy 6, 12. It is by faith that the world is overcome, 1 John 5, 4. Reader, are you certain you have the faith that God's elect has, Titus 1, 1. If not, it is time you make sure for without faith it is impossible to please him, end quote. And having believed in faith that God is, there is this reward. Look at the end of verse 6, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Oh, there is a reward waiting for all those who seek him. Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, run for the prize, run each one in such a way that you may win. I press on, Paul says in Philippians three fourteen to the goal, to the prize, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And if you look over to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, you just need to see all these people in this chapter and all the people who've come before you, all the men and women of faith, and they're in the stands and they're cheering you on and they want you to live by faith. 
They say, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despising shame and has sat down at the throne of God. Have faith in God and please him by walking in faith because without faith, it is impossible to please him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text. What a great passage it is. Father, we want to honor you. We want to be people of faith. Put that in our lives that we might glorify you. And Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, may they now turn to you in faith, trusting in Christ alone. And may you get all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.